Well, last week, Pastor Micah got us started on our new series called Real Love. And I don't know if you missed it. I thought it was a phenomenal sermon. I got to hear him three times. And um, you actually, if you've never tried it, you could just go Google southshores.org. And then right away when it pops up, you'll see a section that says uh, some of the most recent messages. You just click on that and you'd get to hear it. But um, he was talking about loving those who you disagree with. And what we found that uh, that includes all of us. (laughs) everybody. And he gave us some great encouragements. He said to look to Jesus, to copy Jesus, to to lose like Jesus, to to lose your pride, to practice humility, 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 to be be like Jesus. You lose the debate. Jesus lost the argument. He even lost his life for you and for me. And he said to to view arguments less something to be won, more to be an invitation to walk alongside somebody. He encouraged us to beg God for wisdom in prayer and to encourage us to be slow to speak and uh, quick to listen and to ask thoughtful questions and to find common interests uh, with the person that you're disagreeing with. So all of what Michael was saying last week, I'm thinking over and over as thought, you know, this is so good, but it really it all belongs kind of next week when we're talking about loving others in the complexities of commitment. And one of the greatest challenges... And the most challenging commitments a person can make is getting married. I mean, real love and marriage go together. So I probably about half of you just clicked off because you're not married. And, uh, you know, and then several of you are thinking, well, why would you talk about that sore subject? Um, because it's painful right now and it isn't really quite living up to its billing. You know, kind of like, well, I've, I've probably told you before about the couple that she leans over. They're being celebrated for uh, 50 years married and... She leans over, whispers something. Well, he can't really hear quite like he used to. And so after she says what she says, he rears back and he goes, well, I'm kind of tired of you too. And she said, no, no, no. I said, I'm so proud of you. So, oh, you've done that, huh? Okay, okay. Or something like it. You know, my dad grew up in a home that was so painful with so much uh, marital tension and conflict and yelling that he didn't think he ever wanted to get married. He didn't see any use for it until he finally saw a Christian marriage up close when he went off to college uh, from his landlord and lady. And uh, uh, that actually gave him a flicker of hope that maybe there was something to this idea of a Christian marriage. So give me a chance here. I mean, the purpose of the sermon isn't only to help those who are married to love their spouses, but for all of us to love and appreciate those around us who are, uh, who are attempting a lifelong commitment and with the pl- complexities that come f- from it. Uh, because marriage at its best has the potential to bring glory to God. That's really its purpose. And uh, to present a preview of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself, so let's just start at the beginning. Number one, marriage is God's idea. It's God's idea. It's not a man-made invention. We believe that the Bible is the very word of God, and it's our guide for our faith and practice, and the Bible has a lot to say about this topic. In fact, you go right to the first verse of the first uh, book in the Bible. Uh, There's actually three main texts I want to look at today, and uh, just to kind of put a little disclaimer of how God can speak through anybody, the first guy that talks about it was divorced or... 
uh, at least separated for a period of time, maybe got divorced and then remarried somebody that he found at work. The second guy God used to give his word was a confirmed bachelor and kind of proud of it. I mean, you could check that out in 1 Corinthians 7. And then the guy who inspired these two writers was single for the longest time, uh, but he has been involved in a long-term relationship. It's a beautiful love relationship. And so he's engaged to his beloved, and it ultimately is going to lead to the greatest wedding of all time. So let's get started on idea number one, and that is marriage is God's idea. Right in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Before anything else, there's God. Anything besides God that exists, God created it. God created her. God created him. Ask God why he did it, and here's why. Because God's an artist. He's creative. He loves to create. He loves to express his greatness in his creation. I mean, nobody else can do what God could do. I mean, think about it. There's nobody else that has no birthday, no death day. He just exists. He never gets tired. He doesn't grow weary. And he also, God knows everything. I mean, everything. He, he, he doesn't have a computer. He doesn't have a library. He doesn't have to have a database. He just knows everything. God can speak nothing into something, and he did it. God can command chaos in to become order, and he did it. God has authority over heaven and earth and over hell, and he's passionately trying to get people to say yes to his invitation to heaven, but he's not going to twist your arm and insist that you go there. God has the power to give sight to the blind. He can walk on water. He gave hearing to the deaf. He gave good news to the poor. He, he can raise the dead back to life, and we know all this because he did it. God has, the, has generously handed out thousands of promises in his word. Some of them are conditional, but a lot of them aren't. And, and he has the integrity and ability and determination to fulfill all those promises, every one. So if you've hung on to a promise that hasn't been fulfilled yet, keep waiting patiently because God's good for it. God knows everything about you, and he loves you still. He's numbered the hairs on your head. He knows how many days you will live. He knows how many words you will use. He knows what you'll choose to do with your life, and he loves you still. In fact, God knew that to get you into heaven, he had to become a human being. He had to live a sinless life. He had to die a martyr's death on the cross, shed his innocent blood to atone for your sin. And he did it because he could and because he was willing, because he loves you so much. I mean, give God the credit he deserves. Psalm 145 says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. God is great. And you were created not for your own pleasure. You were created to bring glory to God. I mean, I don't know if this is a new idea of a way to look at marriage, but I mean, it's all about God. It's not about you. Even your marriage is not to be about you. It's about God and his greatness. And if you want to experience real love, give real love, then do it God's way. Because it's the only way. So when God set out creating and recorded there in Genesis 1, it says over and over in chapter 1, he created this. Then he looked at it and he said, that's good. He created something else. That's good. Created something else. That's good. And by the time you get to chapter 2, he created man. He goes, that's good. And then in Genesis 2, verse 18, it says, then the Lord said, it's not good. That man, that he should be alone. I will make a helper for him. So out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all livestock, to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. 
So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall on the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, wow, ha-ha, this is at last a bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man will leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they will become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. So right here in Genesis 2, God is the first matchmaker. God creates the perfect man. Then he creates the perfect woman for him. Then he brings them together in the first marriage. Basically, over and over, it says, be fruitful and multiply, be fruitful and multiply. And even Jesus quoted Genesis here as authoritative on marriage. In Matthew 19, Jesus is being asked about marriage and and divorce. And he says, haven't you ever read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And so therefore a man will leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife. The two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, whatever God has joined together, let no one separate. So somebody said, if you outline this, this is too tricky for me, but you would leave, the man is to leave and then they cleave and then they weave. <laughs> kind of good. You can kind of remember that, huh? Leave, have that separation from your family of origin, to cleave to your spouse, and then to weave together this life. And ideally, God says, you put him right in the center, that it's really about God. And you were created not for your own pleasure. You were created to bring glory to God. Isaiah 43, 6 says, Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who's called by my name, who I created for my glory, whom I formed and I made. God knows you and your deepest needs and longings. Think about this. Before Adam ever spoke a word, God says, he's going to need help. He's going to need a helper. It's not good for him to be alone. And God created marriage between one man and one woman till death do us part as a way to give glory to God. So your life is intended to give glory to God. And if you're married, your marriage is a picture of Christ's commitment to his love, his beloved, the church. Well, if you were to keep reading in Genesis, by the time you get all the way to chapter 3, it takes a sharp dog leg left. Because people were given free choice, and they misused it, and sin entered the world, and after that, there were no longer any perfect people, except one and only Son of God. And so you're not perfect, even if you fool most people most of the time. And your spouse is not perfect if you're married, even if you were sure, you were sure at one time that you were going to live on love for the rest of your life. And, you know, you and your spouse, the challenge is you come from different family backgrounds, and... Uh, each family has its own way of doing things. And of course, some kids, when they grow up, say, I'm never going to be like my mom or dad. But, you know, time has a way. And uh, then each family, you're trying to blend two ways of showing love or of communicating or of shopping or of spending or of solving problems. You ever been around somebody who anguished forever over the simplest little decision? And then changed their mind? You ever been around somebody who made a snap judgment just to realize that it was too late to consider all the details that they hadn't noticed? 
I mean, statistics on marriage are kind of grim. About 50% of people in America who get married get divorced. And those that try it again, the second time around is 62% get divorced. And so fewer and fewer people are getting married. In fact, about 8% less than statistics from 1990. And people are getting married later. Men, on the average, are 30 years old. Women are 28 years old when they get married for the first time. And the number one reason when people ask, why are you getting married? The number one runaway reason is for love versus for commitment or for companionship or for financial stability. And of those who are getting married, it's a minority of those who are fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. And even among those who are fully devoted to Jesus Christ, somehow it escapes most of them, most of us, that the goal of marriage is to bring glory to God, to display God's truth and creativity and beauty and awesomeness. I mean, many people get married, even Christian people seem to forget to invite God to come to the wedding or into the marriage. And the guy who wrote this first part is Moses. He's inspired to write the book of Genesis, even though his record was a little spotty. He didn't get married, you know, kind of lived it up and delayed getting married into his 40s after he'd had a huge life crisis. And um, then he comes home one day to his wife, who he's kind of moved in with their family. After a few years, he comes and he says, God spoke to me today, and we're going to Egypt where I grew up. And so on the way, even, they have some sharp disagreements because his wife, whose name is Zipporah, uh, had to fill in for his own lack of uh, spiritual leadership in his family. And they went off to face the Pharaoh. And somewhere in there, between all the pressures of the Pharaoh and the criticism of the people and the things not seeming to move forward, and uh, here your husband is doing da-da-da, she headed back to her family of origin and took their two sons with her. Later, when Moses had finally gotten the people successfully out of Egypt, the slaves, and out to the wilderness, uh, her dad brought her back to Moses at one point. But Moses is the one who wrote this account, and he doesn't really focus on the relationship with her or what happened. And uh, it, he did say that her dad left, but it doesn't say, did she stay with him or did she go with them? And later, his brother and sister criticized him for marrying, quote, a Cushite woman. So the scholars are still arguing over whether Zip was the Cushite woman or whether she left and he just took up with somebody else. Well, God still spoke his truth through him for us. Paul is the next guy. He was single and he saw a lot of advantages to being single. Like you get to do what you want when you want to do it. Like reading or writing any time of the day or night. Like traveling on the spur of a moment when you're not in prison. Like spending without having to get participation or permission. I mean, you can read it. He talks about it in 1 Corinthians 7. Paul was inspired by God as a single person to write to believers who were married to give them God's guidance. And it's found in Ephesians chapter 5. So if you want to turn there with me, it's about two-thirds, three-fourths of the way towards the back of the book. Ephesians 5, verse 18. Now, English wasn't Paul's first language, and Paul has a problem if he was in your English teachers, if he was in your composition class, you'd say, write shorter sentences. Put a punctuation in. Start fresh once in a while. So catch a breath. So anyway, we're breaking into a sentence in Ephesians 5.18. He says, and do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, which is the main thing he's trying to say in this passage. Be filled with God's Spirit, which is basically put God in charge of all of your life. Let God lead you. First, make a huge decision. Yes, I'm going to do that with my whole life. But then to say on a daily basis, maybe even more often than a daily basis, refresh and renew. God, you're in charge in my life. 
Whatever you say, the answer is yes. I'm listening for your voice. He says, be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. What I hear him saying is, choose joy. You're not really going to be singing and making melody in your heart with people that you're mad at or that there's a conflict that's unresolved. So you need to choose joy and keep short accounts and assume the best about the people around you and look at making things smaller instead of larger. And then he says, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I see him saying, choose gratitude. Count your blessings. So often we measure ourselves next to somebody who has more or seems to be doing better rather than saying, look how God has blessed me over and over. And then he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another out of fear of the Lord. So Tim Keller wrote a book on this with his wife, Kathy. It's called The Meaning of Marriage. He's a pastor in New York City. And let me share a couple of his paragraphs with you on this topic. He says, quote, Each of us comes to marriage with a disordered inner being. Many of us have sought to overcome self-doubts by giving ourselves to our careers. That will mean we will choose our work over our spouse and family to the detriment of our marriage. Others of us hope that unending affection and affirmation from a beautiful, brilliant, romantic partner will finally make us feel good about ourselves. That turns the relationship into a form of salvation. And no relationship can live up to that. Do you see why Paul introduces the subject of marriage with a summons to love one another, quote, out of fear of Christ? We come into our marriage driven by all kinds of fears and desires and needs. If I look at my marriage to fill the God-sized spiritual vacuum in my heart, I will not be in a position to serve my spouse. Only God can fill a God-sized hole. Until God has the proper place in my life, I will always be complaining that my spouse is not loving me well enough, not respecting me enough, not supporting me enough. So Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. He goes on to unpack that a little. In verse 21, he says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, which the verb there, submit, is actually not in that verse. It's borrowed from the verse ahead of it in our English text. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her with the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Husbands are called to lead. Wives are called to respect and encourage. Both are called to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Well, Pastor Tandy and I were talking this week, and out of the blue he says, do you know how, how I... Love the Lord with all my heart. I says, well, tell me. He says, well, the thing that's helped me the most learn how to love the Lord my God with all my heart, which is the great commandment, is that my wife Ruth of 60 years, he says, I do my best to meet her needs and she does her best to meet mine to take good care of me. I thought, my goodness, you know, anybody who's made it 60 years probably is going to make it to the end of the race, right? By the way, who here has been married 60 years or more? We are so, uh, whew, we are so blessed. I have to take more than finger. I mean, wow. So 
Anyway, he was waxing eloquent. Oh, what a blessing Ruth has been in his life. And how has it helped him as he has served her and cared for her and listened to her and poured himself out for her. And she has supported him and nurtured him along the way that has helped him to love the Lord with all his heart. Well, John Piper wrote a poem for his son when he was getting married back in 1995 entitled, Love Her More and Love Her Less. I'm going to read part of it, but he, he read this at, at his son's wedding. He said, a double rule of love that shocks a doctrine in a paradox. If you now aim your wife to bless, then love her more and love her less. If in the coming years, by some strange providence of God, you come to have the riches of this age and painless stride across the stage beside your wife, be sure in health to love her more, love her more than wealth. And if your life is woven in a hundred friendships and you spin a festal fabric out of all your sweet affections, great and small, be sure no matter how it rends to love her, love her more than friends. And if there comes a point when you are tired and pity whispers, do yourself a favor, come be free, embrace the comforts here with me. Know this, your wife surpasses these. So love her, love her more than ease. And when your marriage bed is pure and there is not the slightest lure of lust for any but your wife and all is ecstasy in life, a secret all of this protects. Go love her, love her more than sex. And if your taste becomes refined and you are moved by what the mind of man can make and dazzled by his craft, remember that the why of all this work is in the heart. So love her, love her more than art. And if your own should someday be the craft that critics all agree is worthy of great esteem and sales exceed your wildest dream. Beware the dangers of a name and love her. Love her more than fame. And if to your surprise, not mine, God calls you by some strange design to risk your life for some great cause, let neither fear nor love give pause. And when you face the gate of death, then love her, love her more than breath. Yes, love her, love her more than life. Oh, love the woman called your wife. Go love her as your earthly best, beyond this venture not. But lest your love become a fool's facade, be sure to love her less than God. It is not wise or kind to call an idol by sweet names and fall as in humility before a likeness of your God. Adore above your best beloved on earth the God alone who gives her worth. And she will know in second place that your great love is also grace, and that your high affections now are flowing freely from a vow beneath these promises first made to you by God. Nor will they fade for being rooted by the stream of heaven's joy, which you esteem and cherish more than breath and life, that you may give it to your wife. The greatest gift you give your wife is loving God above her life. And thus I bid you now to bless Go love her more by loving less. So Moses said it. Jesus said it. Then Paul even quotes, Therefore a man will leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And then he adds, This is a profound mystery, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So in summary so far, he says, be filled with the spirit of God, not with your own spirit, not with yourself. And submit to one another out of reverence for Christ who died for you. And your marriage is a picture of Christ and his bride. 
that Christ leads and he serves and he died loving his bride, the church. And his bride, who is less than perfect, follows his lead and serves in his name and loves in his stead. So there's kind of a balance there. Christ leads, Christ serves, Christ died for his bride, and the bride in response follows his lead and serves in his name and loves in his stead. Your marriage, you see, is not about you. Done well, your marriage gives glory to God. And married or single, that really is the point of your life, to give glory to God. Well, the third piece of this is that marriage done well previews Christ's marriage to his bride. And the picture in the scripture is that the church is the bride of Christ and that he marries the bride. He calls her his own. People who respond to his offer of forgiveness for their sin are forgiven, are, are cleansed from their sin, are washed, are placed in the robes of righteousness. Are, he claims her as his own. And then someday there will be this marriage celebration between God's spirit in Christ and the bride the church. And so in Revelation 21, we're now to the next to last chapter of the Bible. And in chapter 21 and 22, in 21 verse 2, it says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, the people of God, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with men, with people. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. No death anymore. Neither will there be mourning or crying or pain anymore for the former things have passed away. He's saying, I'm returning you to the state that was in the Garden of Eden where people were perfect and they were in, in constant communication with God. They would walk together in the evening. They would talk. They would have friendship and fellowship and companionship. He says, behold, I'm making all things new. Verse 9, he said, one of the angels who had seven bowls filled full of the seven last plagues spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he introduces him to the church. In the last book of the Bible, last page, chapter 22, verse 13, he says, I am the alpha and omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so they may have the right to the tree of life and they may enter the city by the gates. Verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root. I am the descendant of David. I am the bright morning star. And then it says, the spirit and the bride say, come. They have come together as one, they're unified, and together they say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who's thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price come. You know, in conclusion, you may be thinking, boy, all that sounds really fine for most people, but you don't know my spouse. You don't understand how hard it is to love the stranger that I married. <laughs> I don't know all the particular problems. It's true, but Jesus does. And Jesus chooses people who are all less than perfect and loves them and calls them and purifies them and covers them with his own righteousness. And he's close to those who are broken in spirit. So I would say don't suffer in silence. Get help. 
We have a counseling team here at church. I mean, you don't have to come talk to the pastor. In fact, I took a class at Fuller Seminary with Dr. Archibald Hart, who's the head of the psychology department. And he said something that I, I agreed with the concept, but I thought he got it exactly backwards. Because he said, you know, pastors aren't very good counselors, really. He says, because the pastor's job is to make people feel bad, and the counselor's job is to make people feel good. And I thought, now, wait a minute. I think he's got that backwards, you know? Counselor's the one who has to say, look at you really need to look at this stuff. And the pastor's saying, here's God's word, and how do you apply it to yourself? Anyway, we're offering, even next week, a marriage seminar on communication from an expert. And so if you say, you know, we need to go hear some of that, come on in and listen. If you need more counseling, there's counselors, even today. I'm going to stand here, and I'll offer Come down and pray while we sing. Come and pray at the end as people are leaving. There will be counselors here. Maybe you've never said, I need Jesus first in my heart. Today's the day. Invite him in. Ask him to forgive you, and he will. He will include you in his family. You'll be part of his bride, the church. See, commitment can get complex. It's sticky. It's hard. It has jagged edges. And the way to win is to choose to live real love which is not on emotion, it's on a decision that I'm going to choose to love just like Jesus. Shall we pray? Dear Jesus, thank you for your great love for us. Thank you for the people that you chose to tell the story, people who are less than perfect, people just like us, people who you infused with your spirit to say this is what people have to know so that they can live. Now, I pray that as we pause before you in your word, we will surrender our hearts. Maybe it's just a little fight we've got going on. Maybe there's just something little we're trying to save for ourselves. Maybe it's something big. Maybe it's our whole heart that we need to give to you. Whatever it is today, God, hear our prayer. We pause before you. and We need you. Thank you for loving us. Amen.